Welcome back, lords, ladies, and lovelies, to Black Girl Tea Party. My name is Yasmeen Hill. And I'm Aaliyah Dorsey. First things first, let's get right into the brew. Yasmeen, what is brewing for you this week? Mm, well, I wanted to talk about the charges that were dropped against the white woman, Amy Cooper, who called the police and fabricated the story about Christian Cooper, no relation, uh, a bird watcher. And she said that she was going to tell the police that a black man was threatening her in the park. Uh, the video, uh, I'm pretty sure like, you know what I'm talking about. And if any of our listeners haven't seen it, the video uh, went pretty viral around the summer and Amy Cooper, the woman, was not being threatened. Christian Cooper told her to put her dog on a leash. And the entitlement just jumped out. And she was like, I'm going to call the police and tell them that this large black man is threatening me, a white woman. Um, and I point that out because those dynamics are actually very important to this whole story. And so the an article in NBC News says that the case against the woman was dropped on Tuesday. And so prosecutors in Manhattan Supreme court, the main trial court announced that they were no longer pursuing a misdemeanor charge against the woman who was accused of falsely reporting an incident in the third degree. Uh, the reasoning is that she completed quote, psychoeducation and therapy sessions that helped her appreciate the racial identities that shape our lives. Exactly. No. Exactly. Okay. The, the laughter is completely warranted because this is this whole situation is just like an example of how white people you like weaponize their whiteness you know this had the situation gone differently christian cooper very well could be like dead or injured because of amy cooper's gall and entitlement the idea that she knows what that means. She knows what that vision is, what that visual means of like, oh, this big black man is threatening me. Right? She knows exactly what that means and what the implication was. And I don't understand how taking some classes or, you know, regardless of how psychoanalytic they are, um, I don't know what that does. I don't know what that means for other black people that she's going to come into contact with. Um, I fear, I fear for their safety. So yeah, another quote is the simple principle is that one cannot use the police to threaten another. And in this case, in a racially offensive and charged manner, given the issues at hand and Ms. Cooper's lack of criminal background, we offered her consistent with our position on many misdemeanor cases involving a first arrest, an alternative restorative justice resolution. And so it's like these alternative restorative justice resolutions don't exist for uh, people of color. Because I feel like if we really went back and looked at it, there's probably a lot of cases in which like could have been solved with restorative justice. And instead we have like the school to prison pipeline. Right. And like all of these other systems that are like surviving off of like black trauma. So, yeah, I didn't want to get too deep into it, but that was like. I don't know. I'm just disappointed. Yeah, I saw that story, too, and it did not sit right with me just because, like, I don't know. You can go to all the classes that you would like to, but it doesn't necessarily always correlate to this person thinking more deeply about, like, their privileges in society and or even thinking about, like, why what she did was wrong and could have, like, 
killed this man like i feel like whenever we have these stories of white people calling the police on black people like what that is saying is that like they expect black people to fear the police because they are fearing death and like i think and i don't know if whatever class she went to is enough to like have her understand the full weight of that but you know disappointment all around um What's brewing for me this week is um, let's talk about Rush Limbaugh. So Rush Limbaugh died um, this week. He was 70 years old. He had been battling cancer for um, a significant amount of time. And here's the dealio. Um, I usually don't think that we should celebrate people dying. However, however, this man was an absolute terror to most people um like if you are of a marginalized group this man most likely hates your existence um and has continued throughout has made a career out of saying awful things about awful vile horrific things about people on the internet and has hid behind all those awful things by saying that it's a joke and by saying people are too sensitive and also also has had a stronghold on American politics for far too long and not in a good and positive way but in the most insidious way possible and so like I again I'm not saying I'm glad that Rush Limbaugh is dead but what I will say is that I'm not gonna cry about it um I'm going to sleep very peacefully in my bed with the knowledge that Rush Limbaugh is no longer of this world. Um, I'm just not gonna think about it and I'm not gonna be sad about it, you know? It's not a celebration, just an indifference. And I think for someone who is as like deeply attention seeking and as cruel as Rush Limbaugh was in life, I think that me never thinking about this man ever again is what he deserves you know um so and with that it's time for tea this week we will be profiling music legend big mama thornton she was an incredibly influential figure in the rock and roll and blues scene of the 50s and 60s and has a truly remarkable presence both in music then and today so, uh, Yasmin, what do you know about Big Mama Thornton? Not a whole lot. I was reading an article today about, um, you know, people that really, like, shaped music. And she was in the in it. And I, I feel like we've name-dropped her before. But I don't know a lot about um, the blues scene in general, like, in its formation. So I'm actually really excited. Um to learn oh my god yay okay so let's get into it um so willie may thornton was born on december 11th 1926 to thomas h thornton and edna m richardson thornton in montgomery alabama her father was a preacher and so a lot of her first musical influences were found in church um after her mom died when she was 14 uh, she left home to tour with producer Sammy Green because um, around that time she was like working in saloons and there are some like 
you know, different stories about how they met. Either way, he um, heard her sing in the saloon, and then they met, and then she went on tour with him for a number of years. Um, she joined his Georgia-based Hot Harlem Review in 1941. Um, what's fascinating about her being in the Hot Harlem Review is that when she was in this review, she was a very accomplished, self-taught like singer, drummer, and harmonica player. And she performed with the review for seven years as they toured throughout the South. And I think it's just like, I think it's important to remember that like her teaching herself how to play instruments was like an amazing feat. I think at the time we were not thinking about women as being like accomplished musicians in this way. And so her being like a musical prodigy from a very young age was incredibly impressive um, and still is. Um, and so during this time when she was touring with um, the Hot Harlem Review, uh, she found great musical influences in other blues greats at the time, such as Light Lightning Hopkins, Lowell Folson, Junior Parker, Clarence Gatemouth Brown, Ma Rainey, and Bessie Smith. And she was like heavily compared to Bessie Smith at the time that she was alive and making music. Um, and so after that, we'll get into kind of what I think she is most known for, which is the next phase of her life after she left the review to settle down in Houston. Um, and so Yasmin, what are your, what are your initial thoughts about Mama Thornton knowing this part of her legacy? I think it's always interesting that um, a lot of these like musicians were either like shaped by churches or like their families were really active in churches. Like, um, and that's just like a common theme. I feel like uh, with R and B singers even today. And so I think like that's interesting. Um, but also I'm, I'm just like I don't get nervous, right? But I. I'm always so like interested about like how these stories happen just because like I know it was really hard specifically for like black musicians at this time and so it's like I wonder what that um just knowing all of this I just makes me think about like what the day-to-day -day is like or I guess the nights you know um because I know like the performers weren't paid the same amount um it was hard to even get like stage time and so that's really just what I'm thinking about but it's like knowing all of that and then knowing that like you still want to be a singer or you still want to be you still want to perform and then like you use your resources and the tools that you do have to do that i think it's uh pretty dope right right which actually okay this is probably one of my we're gonna get into like what i think is probably one of my favorite parts about this story and so she so in houston uh she met uh don roby um, who was like the head of like Peacock Records in 1951. Um, and so she like signed on with this label and began working with a other artist named Johnny, o named Johnny Otis. And so they traveled the country um, with like several other popular singers at the time. And they just played like a number of like big hit venues, like Houston's Bronze Peacock and the Harlem and Harlem's Cotton Club. Um, so she was traveling along what is known as the Chitlin Circuit, which is a string of clubs and other venues that actually allowed black performers to play in them. And I think that's like a very important part of like blues history is that uh, while like like black people 
created American music because all music ties back into the blues in some way. And what's really like interesting about like the Chitlin Circuit is that this was a big part of black culture and of black community that we carved out for ourselves. And that's like really one of the most like amazing things about her stories that she was a part of this like large ecosystem that black creatives had made for themselves. Um, and I also think at this point, it's important to acknowledge that like Big Mama Thornton was not only important because she was like a female singer, because there were other female singers who were like just as talented as her at the time. But I think what's important about knowing about her is that she was a female musician, you know, like she played instruments. And I think like seeing a woman play an instrument so well especially like a drum you know which isn't typically like considered like a instrument that a lot of women play was like a very very big deal at the time and I think it's one of the things that makes her the most fascinating to me about it which it's now while we're talking about like um Thornton and like gender um I haven't been able to find like a ton of sources on this but um also, at the time that she was performing music, she was, like, openly a lesbian. Um, and it's actually said that, like, her openness about her sexuality is what drove, like, a wedge between, like, her professional and French and her professional work relationship and her friendship with uh, producer Don Roby. Um, and, like, if you look at images of her, like... She looks very butch, you know, she wore a lot of men's clothes. She, um, when she had to put on a dress, she, um, there's some sources say that she was very like, um, like ornery about it and did not enjoy it. Um, but also it's just like, I'm just really comforted by that. Um, knowing that this like big figure was like, you know, queer. Um, and that also was like openly queer at this time when it might have it might not have always been like um safe for her to do so um but moving on with that um let's talk about how she actually like got the name big mama thornton and so that name came about while she was touring um i think it came from the like producer of the apollo theater at the time and he called her like big mama thornton not only because like she was um like she was a fat woman but also it's like she had this big presence she was known for like being able to sing so loud that she didn't need a microphone you know and so the term like big mama is also just kind of like um a reminder that she is like this commanding presence in any space that she walks into and I remember last week we were talking about how like i have a lot of insecurities about like taking up too much space both as like a fat person and like as a like woman aligned person and like as like a black woman specifically and she's also like one of those figures that I think about when I'm like wow I should be and can take up more space um and I should do that like you know um outwardly um but also, like, you know, her sexuality does come into play in this situation, which also I learned that apparently being queer was a pretty normal thing for, like, blues era musicians. Because other musicians like Mon Rady and Bessie Smith were also known as being openly queer at the time. And so it was very much more like you were saying the quiet part loud when, like, Mama Thornton was, like, being open about the women that she was with. 
Um, and so knowing all of this about her, Yasmin, what do you think of her legacy at this I point? I mean, I feel like you summed it up so eloquently, like, and we're seeing how like these figures being um, just like openly appreciating her body or being vocal about like the things that she wants to wear and how that is like influencing even us today. Um, and I'm glad that like we're talking about her sexuality like pretty early on. Not that that like, um, and, and like just like the ways that that affected her career. Because even at the top of the episode, I was talking about how I was like, oh, how are these black folks like navigating this circuit? Not even like, I hadn't even like done the work to like acknowledge that like her sexuality like played another part in that and so it's like even on the show it's like we're we're doing the work to like interrogate how those things um layer and work with each other but i'm also really glad that you pointed out that like this was not like a thing that was uncommon with other like um blues musicians in the circuit right so and it's like we can see that like even in the lyrics and it's not i don't i also don't think it's uncommon for musicians to talk about these things and sometimes it seems like they're not because it could come off as like being very poetic but based off of like what you're telling me I'm like I don't think um Big Mama Thornton is like hiding any of this and but I also wanted to point out like just like on the clothes thing that um how she like often dressed in men's clothing that is like very trendy to do now that's like a very trendy thing that happens. And I guess we can talk about it um, in another episode, but like pointing that out, like, but it's only trendy on like thin petite people, or at least that is how, like how I interpret it in like fashion that like dressing androgynously is something fashionable. If you are of like a certain body type right right yeah in our fat phobia episode i have so many thoughts <laughs> about um androgyny on like fat bodies specifically but yeah like i think it just like it added to like this character that had been created for her as being like a large presence and so people attributed that to something that was more masculine you know which like you know in her case it was comfortable for her to be viewed this way but like it's not always the case for other people who have fat bodies and who like who like to dress in men's clothes or like to be seen as more or who or who don't who just like you know are comfortable in more um gender non-conforming clothing but we will definitely talk about that aspect that's really important and i'm gonna make sure to hold that in uh for episode on fat phobia yeah I mean, it just, it points out how all of these things are linked. Yes. Yes, they definitely are. They definitely are. Um, and so now we're going to get into <laughs> the part of her legacy that makes my blood boil <laughs> a little bit. Uh, so let's talk about the song Hound Dog. Um, this was one of her earliest and most popular recorded tracks. Um, and like a thing that, and like this was, this song was made specifically for her about like blackness and in some sort some sources will even say about like queerness in some way and that like this was made for her voice and for the image that big mama thornton had like 
constructed for herself, right? So it was initially released by, by Peacock Records in 1953. Um, and then it actually, okay, it topped the R&B charts for seven weeks and sold over two million copies nationwide. And so the song brought her personally a lot of acclaim, but it only actually, she only actually made about $500 from the song. Um, and when we adjust that for inflation, that's about $4,000 from this song. Now, if we, and we put that in comparison to Elvis Presley, who released a cover of the song in 1956, which was like heavily refined to mainstream audiences and brought him both like a whole lot of fame. Elvis Presley made billions of dollars off this song. Like this song, like sky, like when you think of Elvis Presley, you think of the song Hound Dog. And what what about this is that like, it's not even his song and it wasn't made for him. And he never acknowledged at any part of his life where he got the song from. And he never even acknowledged Big Mama Thornton as being responsible for a lot of the fame that he acclaimed after he released this song. Now, um, a similar thing happened with her song Ball and Chain, which was covered by Janis Joplin. But the difference is, is that Janis Joplin did credit Mama Thornton and he was a huge fan of her and he got permission from her to cover this song but his but her but his version of Ball and Chain was also like surpassed her in popularity and so in this way we have to talk about the way that like racism in the music industry has affected this woman's life like irreparably to be honest um so what are your thoughts on this controversy around the song hound dog um i'm gagged i'm livid i you can't hear it in my voice but i'm like i'm not surprised because i knew that a lot of elvis's fame and like the way that he danced and the way that he dressed is really just like attributed to black creators um but it there's like something like especially irritating about it that because you you're right. It's like when you think of Elvis, you think of like this song. And to know that like that song was literally somebody else's. And she doesn't get the benefit of it. Or at all. It's like she didn't get the benefits then. And then it's like even when we're remembering these people, she doesn't get that like... It's like an afterthought. And I think that is what is specifically like um, disappointing about it. You know? Because like we're not talking about how... She wrote this amazing song and like shaped literal pop culture. It's like this white man stole <laughs> this song from her and profited off of it. Um, right. Made billions. Made so much money. Than she would ever see. Shaped his entire career and his whole aesthetic. And, you know, that I think you and I are the same. Like my, my blood is also boiling. But it's like we can, there are just so many instances of stuff like this happening that I, I, I am not surprised. But it's like, even though we know that this stuff happens, I still feel like we have to do a lot of work to prove that it happens. And that is also quite irritating. <laughs> right. And like, and it still happens. Like we talked about it in our music episode um, last season that like oftentimes we have white artists who steal things from black creatives and rebrand it and suddenly it's like in vogue now and the same thing happened with like you know with rock and roll and with blues you know is that like these are art forms made by black people 
and we are not in the room. I literally had a conversation with someone about how, like, um, I think there should be more of, like, black people in pop punk because, like, rock and roll is, like, inherently, like, a black art form. Um, but that's a whole, like, you know, a different can of worms. But this is, I think, one of the big instances of, like, white people have taken something from a black creative and they'll they'll just never see the credit they, that, that they deserve for it um and so this also hurts a lot for me because in the 50s uh is also like like the mid 50s is when blues started to go out of style because rock and roll was becoming popular which is what elvis is known for is her being a rock star um and so and also at the same time her deal with her record label had expired um, and so this is when she kind of moves up, she moves out to California and she continues to make music and she continues to perform at like, uh, smaller venues and at clubs without a label. And it's a really big deal then as it still is now to perform without a label because she was still making albums, you know, and she was still wildly popular amongst people who like loved her music. Um, and so... Then in the 60s, the blues came back into style with artists like Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones. And so she made some of her last albums for um, for Arhuli and Mercury labels, including a collaborative album such as Big Mama Thornton with the Chicago's Blue Band in 1967 um, with Muddy Waters and Ball and Chain um, in 1968 with Sam Lightning Hopkins. Um, and additionally, she was regularly featured at the Monterey Jazz Festival in San Francisco and American Folk Blues Festival throughout Europe, which was like really rare for female artists to be able to perform there. Um, and so all of these were like just really, really big accomplishments for her. And she was continuing to play her old music, but continuing to make new music. Um, and so in the 1970s, after years of like alcohol abuse um her health began to decline um and so she was still performing at varying venues during this time as well uh she released her san her lap oh, i did one again she released some of her last albums such as jail and sassy mama for vanguard records in 1975 um and her story comes to an end on july 25th 1984 where she died um of long-standing heart and liver disorders Due, due to her many years of alcohol abuse and honestly in relative poverty in a boarding home in LA and she was only 57 when she passed away and that part is always going to be particularly sad for me just because this is a woman who she shaped so many musicians style and influence and she frankly died relatively alone um at, at the at a very like young age for for people um and i think like the large takeaway that we could have from her legacy is that a we should be crediting black creatives as much as we can and uplifting black creatives as much as we can for the hard work they create but also i think that like if you are a musician you have to like you know credit your ancestors and realize that a lot of those ancestors are also african-american because we wouldn't have American music without black people. <laughs> you can say that again. Yeah, I, I think you're like just getting it like right on the head, but it's like, 
I, you know, how people say like this person walked so that this person can run. I almost want to say that about Big Mama Thornton, but that like doesn't even seem like it's giving enough credit to all of the running that she did. You know what I'm saying? Like um, headlining these European festivals and continuing to make albums without a record label. And it's like today that seems like um, something that you can do because there are artists that have skyrocketed to the top without record labels. Um, But in the 60s, like especially like as a black woman, like it'd be super hard not to so it would be super hard to get people to hear your art without that um support of a label so it's like I don't want to say that like she just walked so that people could today like could run but I also just feel like she was running in a time period that was just like not ready right she ran so we could sprint yeah literally like she ran so we could sprint or she sprinted so that we could I don't know do something whatever comes after that um <laughs> right i just feel like we can't give her enough flowers she was inducted into the music hall of fame um and so like she is like you know re- she has received some flowers post-mortem but definitely definitely not enough you know like she she deserved to receive flowers then, you know, and she deserved, and I think, like, things like this show, um, and things like continue to remembering her legacy, and whenever, and, you know, listening to her version of Hound Dog is probably, um, the most that we can do. That is a wrap for our episode this week. Yasmin, where can our listeners find you? Uh, our listeners can find me on Instagram. I'm at Yasmin underscore S-A. Aaliyah, where can our listeners find you? I'm at It's Aaliyah Dorsey on Twitter and Instagram. As always, please follow us at Black Girl Tea Party on Instagram and search Black Girl Tea Party on Facebook and Black Girl Tea Time on Twitter to stay up to date with our episodes and with updates from us. Also, please subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our show. You can also send us an email at blackgirlteaparty at gmail.com. Send us questions, ask for advice, tell us how much you love the show. We would love to hear from you. And in the words of Willie Mae, Big Mama Thornton, white or black, rich or poor, if you've ever had your heart broken, you have a right to sing the blues. Thank you all for joining us this week. Our sources are all listed in the caption. Please love each other and yourselves, and we'll see you next week. You ain't nothing but a hound dog.